It's Bigfoot Collectors Club with Bryce and Michael. <laughs> I know a ghost story or two. Let's do this. <laughs> hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Bigfoot Collectors Club, the show where we talk to amazing guests about their personal paranormal history and share stories of high strangeness. I am your host, Michael McMillan. With me, usually, is your other host, Bryce Johnson, and super producer, Riley Bray. However, this week, the team has been fractured and scattered into the four winds. Um, I am uh, recording from a remote location, which is why this sounds a little bit different than usual. Um, Riley is off on a job, and of course, we all know where Bryce is. Living with a family of Bigfoot somewhere deep in the Canadian forest. Uh, but fret not, we have an amazing episode for you guys today. I had a chance to sit down via Skype with author linda s godfrey she's been on the show before about her new book called i know what i saw and we get into it this episode has everything we've got centaurs that's right there are centaurs mentioned nazi werewolves gnomes elves i don't think we talk about unicorns or mermaids but I'm telling you, this one is chock full of weird stuff. So I want to get over to that. But before we do, a little bit of business. Guys, we have our High Strangeness t-shirts on sale right now at tpublic.com backslash Bigfoot Collectors Club. That's our Bigfoot Collectors Club t-shirt merch shop over at Public. Check them out. The High Strangeness shirts by artist Ryan Cody are cool. Please pick up one of those. And then also dropping at the end of the month is the new album by Sun. Eaters, the band that wrote our theme song, Come Alone. They have a new album dropping uh, called Unfathomable Darkness. And Come Alone is on that album, will be. And also, at the very end of this episode, you're going to get a sneak peek at one of the other tracks from that album. Uh, so let's go over, talk to Linda. Come back here. I'll wrap it up and then I'll send you away with a sweet, sweet song by Sun Eaters. Our guest today is an author, illustrator, investigator of the strange, and one of America's foremost authorities on modern-day monsters. Her past works include Monsters Among Us, American Monsters, Real Wolfmen, and she was the journalist that broke the story of The Beast of Bray Road. Her new book drops next week, which means it is up for pre-order right now, and it's titled I Know What I Saw, Modern Day Encounters with Monsters of New Urban Legend and Ancient Lore. Please welcome back to the show, Linda S. Godfrey. Hi, Linda. Hi there, Michael. How are you? I'm great. I'm so happy that you came back to talk to us. Um, Last time that we spoke to you, which was in October, you had just mentioned the new book, and and I made you promise you would come back and talk to us as soon as it was out. And it's dropping on July 16th, which is Wednesday, correct? Yes. Or Tuesday. Tuesday. uh, Tuesday, actually. Yeah, it's been three kind of long years. (laughs) I've never had a book take this long, but it's a complex subject and has a lot of different things in it that required um, some sort of deep 
searching for for archaic things. So I'm I'm glad that it's out there. I'm glad to be talking about it. Um, it's just been a, a while coming. Yeah, I was going to say this book is. I, first of all, I read it. I loved it. Um, I'm so glad I got a copy. Um, so thank you for that. And um, you know, I, I, as I've mentioned on the show before, I just really really enjoy your work. And this one is like. It's a great fast read, uh, especially if you like to read monster stories and encounters like I do. But they're really, I mean, this is really a complex book and there's a lot of stuff in it. And I, uh, yeah, so I mean, like, how did you go about approaching this book and what makes it different from your past work? So let's just jump right in. Well, it actually started out with a different title, which was something like, um, American monsters, American legends, things about um, American legendary. I'm not saying it correctly because it was kind. Of, it was a little bit ungainly, and I never did memorize the whole <laughs> thing. But, but I had uh, it was American terrors was the main byline of it. Oh, that's and cool. the ed- it was cool. And the editor who was there, who was also very cool, wanted me to do something showing and comparing and contrasting ancient myths. Um, not quite so ancient legends and some of the new urban legends such as slender man etc right and put those together and uh you know it, it was a cool idea and i was glad to do it and then our published that, that publisher penguin merged with random house and mm-hmm. in the process of putting those two giant publishers together um, people got swapped around and taken out and you know put back in, and I ended up with a different editor. And it it was um, I was very sad to see the first one go, but it did free me up in some ways to change it a little bit and uh, change the emphasis to include uh, not not just a certain group of modern creatures, but uh, some other ones that I think people will be really interested in, like I'm sure you noticed the, the dire dogs, not dire Oh, wolves. yeah. I want to get into that in a little bit. The dire dog stuff is really fascinating. Um, there's a lot of, like, quadrupeds in this book. I didn't realize how many uh, cryptids out there run around on all fours or maybe six legs. Um, one creature that pops up early that you mentioned in the book, which immediately got my attention, uh, is... A centaur in St. Louis? Yeah, yeah. There have been a couple of reports. Um, One was reported right near the St. Louis Arch. And there's not a lot of meat to the stories other than the sighting. You know, they don't, the the sightings themselves aren't very deep in um, things that actually happened to the to the person who was reporting, but just the fact that we are getting sightings of what people swear is half horse, half man. You know, and you wonder, how how is that? And then yeah. you think, well, you know, the Greeks and Romans had centaurs. And where did they get them? It's And, and how has it persisted to this time and space where people could look at something and say, oh, yeah, that's a centaur. Does that knowledge that previous centaurs existed, according to ancient people, help inform you in your decision when you're trying to figure out what the heck you're looking at? Or is this something that is just so um, basic and never changing in itself that it's immediately recognizable? And, you know, there are a lot of things that if you read books of lore, you'll find different descriptions for different things. But the main archetypes, especially when they're 
human slash animal like centaurs, dogmen, cat people, deer people, whatever, seem to be a basic thing in the human psyche that you go to almost any time, any culture, any religion, and you will find half man, half creature um, beings. And that's another thing that it, it's just such a curiosity to me as to why that would just be entrenched in us, that it would last throughout time and place. So do you think that these entities are then, I mean, let's just get into it, um, are then something that's emerging from our collective Jungian, you know, the Jungian collective unconsciousness? Are these um, entities that maybe we are, you know, almost like the, you know, you've, I'm sure you've heard of, you know, of a tulpa, something that is sort of brought to life through our consciousness um, brought into existence, which, you know, I, I don't know too much about Tulpas. I haven't done a lot of research beyond, um, you know, just like a couple podcasts I've listened and reading about it. But um, are these, here's my question, What which came first, the monster or the myth? Exactly. That's the main keystone question that this book hangs upon. And, you know, I thought, well, this will be good because I can pick something out, trail it back to where it started, and, you know, we'll have this nice thing all wrapped up like a, a nice uh, ball of yarn or something. Well, once you go in and you start peeling away the different strands of yarn and trying to separate them by, by colors, they end up just getting tangled. You have to move one back here and one there. And it gets really difficult to tell. There is one episode in the book where I think I make a good start at it, where um, there was a local legend in Pennsylvania about this dog lady that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. supposedly haunted this area of sanatoriums that once were big resorts uh, with springs and all that kind of thing. That's Is this and, the meat hook? Uh, yes. Yeah, that story's great. Can you yeah, tell us? I don't want to spoil too much about the book, but if you can share any of these, that'd be awesome. Yeah, and that this is actually one of my favorite chapter headings ever, which is a meat hawk and a dog lady. <laughs> I like you know. that in this one, we're really getting into, you know, we had dog man. Now we have dog lady in this book or a dog woman. It's sort of like the She-Ra to He-Man. <laughs> right. I like that the, the, the dog family is, is growing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and I, I found maybe five or six um, different stories that were um, um, just about dog men or excuse me, dog women or dog ladies, they're kind of rare. And except for one that was in Mobile, Alabama, not too long before this one, uh, this other one I'm talking about showed up, they don't really have any female attributes. Um, usually they're covered with long hair, so you really can't see what or determine what sex they are. They're, they're canines. Um, the one in Mobile, Alabama had long hair and a human-like face and was said to be very pretty. But she's the only one. Another such legend turned out to be an actual elderly woman that lived kind of marooned on this island that in uh, just off of Michigan. And it became sort of a party place. And mm-hmm. kids who, out there who rode their boats out to party would see this woman who was supposedly living with a pack of dogs, whether they were feral or her own tame ones, wasn't sure. But she would growl and she would go on all fours and, um, you know, kind of a sad story really when you think about the woman i think she was something real and there were all these weird legends that had grown up around her such as 
um, there were motorcycle saint, mo- motorcycle riding Satan worshippers who brought a coffin out there, and she would sleep in the coffin, and or she'd be crawling around in the bushes while they were having campfires, and they'd hear growling, and they'd know it was the dog lady. Um, and there there is actually a human a human history. She was possibly a former caretaker on that island before the family that owned it moved away or that had a big mansion and grounds there moved away and ended up there just by herself. So there you have a, an actual person that sort of, um, Ins- you know, inspired the myth in a way. Inspired the myth. Yeah. Or degenerated into it. I'm not sure really right. which to look at it, you know, because it's just sad, but, uh, and there was another one in Texas where it seemed that it was about a real woman, but she was a feral child. That's the Lobo girl, right? The Lobo. One that, what, what, what did they call her? The Lobo girl. Yeah. Right. That one right. I've, I've, I've read about before about, a, uh, they think that it was a, she was, a, it was kind of like Mowgli, like a baby, a girl <laughs> that was raised by a pack of wolves. Right. Exactly. Fascinating. And then supposedly she was seen later with her own baby half wolfling. So, um, there, the women in these types of legends seem to have these really um, detailed, sort of intimate stories about them that you don't really see with the dog men. The dog men, they're there, they show up, they give you a hard stare in the eye, and then usually they bound off somewhere. Unless they're one of the phantom-like types, which, right. are, which are not the same thing at all. But the women, are they're elusive, they're, they have... Babies, they, you know, prowl around sanatoriums, leap off of stone walls, um, take habitation in a stone room on a, on a stone wall next to an old sanatorium where there still is a meat hook until quite recently. I guess the meat hook is gone now, but it actually, it turns out, and I have photos of uh, this stone wall where it exists in the new book. Yeah, those are cool photos. That looks super creepy. I mean, how old, <laughs> how old is that wall? What does that well, date it, back to? How far does it, that date back to? Yeah, it would go back to the late 1800s, you know, when the whole um, health spa movement started coming about and people discovered all the wonderful fresh springs and, and thought they would be healthy places for people to uh, rest and put up resorts. And then they turned into sanatoriums once um, everybody was trying to take care of the, the tuberculosis outbreaks. Oh, you know? Yeah. The early 20th century, and, and they invented this method of fresh air and springs and that kind of thing. So these great big institutional-type buildings were built all over, and especially around Michigan and Pennsylvania, for some reason, seemed to have a lot of abandoned ones. And this is one that I think it's been turned partly into another business, and the meat hook, sadly, is gone. But that stone uh, receptacle where it was the, it actually served the purpose of um, a cool refrigerator. Right. They would they would pack the meat in there, close it up with some kind of door, and then the meat would stay fresh that they needed for their um, for their business. So, how it got from there to being the abode of a dog lady, I wasn't sure. But then, <laughs> when when I started looking up, you know, if you kind of track each one back and look at the dates and look at the proximity. Um, it seemed to me that it probably started with young people um, at one end or the other and traveled um, through the high schools, which are usually the great uh, the great um, 
messengers of, of legend and where they were becoming kind of the um, monster tapping on the car window while necking sort of things. Right. And it, it, could, it could easily have traveled within that amount of time, uh, just word, word, to, word from um, word to mouth to mouth until it reached one end or the other. So you can see how it could have been shared and just spread because it was such uh, really a compelling legend. It's fascinating how like car culture has helped develop our relationship with these stories and encounters, isn't it? You know, it's like as soon as I feel like teenagers were out driving around in cars, suddenly you had, you know, dogmen or uh, goat men or creatures clawing at the car, this lizard man of skateboard swamp. You know, you hear a lot of stories. There's a, um, in outside of Kansas City, where I grew up, I think in just south on the um, Missouri side of the state around Harrisonville, there's mm-hmm. a legend of a creature called the Ridge Runner, which is supposed to be like some feral kind of cat or wolf man that like chase runs alongside cars and scratches up cars. Um, it's I, it makes me wonder like were were these entities attacking horse drawn carriages back in the day, or is this something that is you know, developed as, you know, our culture and our technology is developed. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I actually have a tale that sort of speaks to that. Um, It's in Wisconsin in the northern unit of the Kettle Moraine State Forest, which is known for Bigfoot reports and Dogman reports, but also has a Goatman. And when you look this up, the Goatman legend goes back to supposedly Civil War days where there was a horse and carriage with um, not necking couples, this was more <laughs> to that age, but it had a, a young married couple who were taking their, their honeymoon ride through the through the woods to get somewhere, and mm-hmm. uh, they were actually camping in this covered carriage that they had, and they heard a noise outside of the covered carriage and some kind of grunting sound. And so heroically, the, br- the groom told the bride to stay in the carriage, and he would go out and see, and he, she heard some kind of horrible noises, but never got out of the carriage until morning. And then she went running, looking for her new husband. And there he was, what was left of him, stuck up in a nearby tree. No. Ugh. I hate it when that happens. <laughs> wow. What, how did they know it was a goat man? Who saw the goat man? Well, supposedly the footprints left were the cloven hoofs of a uh. large goat, a bipedal goat. And... Uh, there have been other times where people have claimed to have seen this goat man who's supposed to still be around. It's by a place called Holy Hill, which is a, it's a beautiful, imposing Catholic Roman Catholic shrine with twin towers that are lit up. And it's a very wild territory where there are mountain-like areas and then river valleys, very steep hills. It doesn't look like any other part of uh, that side of the state at all. But I think that's what helps engender these these legends. And it has there was supposed to be a hermit that um, had leg injuries and crawled up the the entire mountain up to where the shrine was. And the shrine wasn't there at the time, but when he got to it, he was healed and uh, served the the church from then on. And then that's supposed to be how that thing grew. So there's a real depth of legend that all kind of link up in that particular case, but. They're using the creatures that are showing up there are, again, such archetypes. The hermit, the goat man, mm-hmm. um, the big hairy man, the dog man, the wolves. So um, 
it's it's kind of like these these legends re- rinse and repeat wherever they go. Yeah, what is it about these hybrid creatures? You talk about this a little bit in the book, but like, what what is it about? It? Why does it always feel like it's some sort of combination between a human and, a, and an animal? What's what, what's your theory behind that? I mean, there's the you know the extraterrestrial hypothesis that this is all like genetic testing done by aliens, you know, or yes. is it something more mysterious than that? Well, you know, you really go back to like the very earliest cultures, the Sumerians and the the uh, Egyptians, and they had all of them half man, half creatures that were related to the gods, and what they were actually doing was choosing um, the best attributes and the most powerful attributes of all the animals that were around them, wherever um, they were living at the time, and they would take those traits from, from the animal to show that this god had all those same powers. You know, it had the strength of the mountain lion, it had the cunning of the wolf, and so they would be in a way, sort of teaching about the attributes of each of these gods. And um, I read that somewhere. I didn't make that up. I couldn't quote it to you right away, but I, I know that that is one one theory that people have that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, they weren't, they weren't necessarily always being um, absolutely saying that, yes, these are part animal. Um, it's more that they have, the, the jackal has that quality of foraging around um, dead dead people and burials so that makes it like the god of death you know right it it will come snooping to find you so um that's i think if you go back to the very early origins that's kind of where that starts and then you for a long time um that i think that got transmogrified into things like fairy tales and things where um these part human part monsters were just out to get people um for some reason or another and do nefarious things to them and then you get up to modern day because people couldn't understand uh, except by means of magic or um, learning how to control um, auras or spirit bodies that that humans are believed to have you know related often to their electromagnetic fields or to um, actual spirits that inhabit the, the the earth and interact with our brains with the human brains you know, they're all different levels like that where people are trying to imagine how it could be possible they look at these ancient pictures of humans and animals and, and think about that. And we've never had an answer until now when we can take any two animals and splice and dice their genes. We've got their genomes completely matched. So we can go in and take one gene out, put a different animals in there, or move it over a couple spaces on the DNA spiral or... Um, you know, they call it the, the CRISPR is, is C-R-I-C-R-S-P-E-R. I couldn't tell you what it stands for, but it, re, it refers to this sort of genetic research. Or you can, you know, we've got um, mice running around with pig ears right. off their backs. And, and many times that uh, level of ability, I think, is, is actually out there. And we've had, uh, there's a Russian scientist who's been talking about doing a head transplant to a different body. And I think the last uh, quote that I had in the book was dated uh, in, in, in 2017. So now we've had two years go by, and who knows what has been done. At that time, they were saying so far they'd been hold, either holding back 
or they hadn't quite done it yet, although there's no guarantee of that. And I, this may make me seem negative, but I firmly believe that owing to human nature, how, how we are, if there is something that can be done, even if it's not necessarily ethical, and somebody possesses the knowledge and the means to do it, they will find a way to do it. Well, you know, and- yeah, it's like the um, it's like science is catching up to the old Victorian era mad scientists, you know, machinations and we like H.G. Wells and Jules Verne. I mean, we are right. I mean, it's Frankenstein's monster, you know, just leaps from the old stories to, you know, we're putting together our own monsters, and then of course. To make the legends, um, then these things have to get out somewhere and be seen someplace where they can be noted and and told of again, and then the whole legend trip starts anew. Right. So, do you, are you implying? Do you think it's possible that some of these entities that people have encountered are possibly the like escaped laboratory subjects of some crazy science experiment, or? Is it just that culture's overlapping upon itself? You know, it's that tangled weave of Christmas lights where you're trying to find, like you said earlier, trace that thread back to an original source point, and it's just not that simple. Right, right, exactly. Well, you know, I sort of sort out urban legends from maybe um, new legends based on other things by the fact that an urban legend is usually identifiable by being almost the same from place to place. There are just adjustments made for the local terrain, the local customs, um, you know, the the time frame that it's in, that that sort of thing. Because you can find, like, goat men in so many states, so many places. Maryland was just full of them. And they've got this um, medical, uh, it's a, a, I'm trying to think if it's military or just government. Anyway, they have a government medical facility where there is supposed to have been a goat man that was a mad scientist, and somehow, I don't know if the the juice from the from the um, goat man they were trying to make or something went wrong, and he ended up turning into a goat man himself. That's awesome. That sounds like a Spider-Man villain. <laughs> and he's been haunting the woods ever since. And also, the same one is supposed to be foisting off on us the so-called um, chupacabras, where they've got a dead raccoon that the water has washed, has pretty much taken the hair off of, and it's um, the skin has shrunken around the base of all the claws, mm-hmm. which makes the claws look really long, mm-hmm. but you don't realize it's the shrinking flesh. And they do look really bizarre, but in the final um, analysis, they're almost always proven to be a dead raccoon or something similar. But um, you find one of these in a creek near a military installation, and then we go on to the point that Military installations often are magnets for strange creature sightings. Oh, yeah, we've done a whole episode about that recently, Uh, like Edwards Air Force Base, which had UFO activity as well as, like, Sasquatch activity. Right, exactly. And Werewolf, um, one chapter I have in this book, you may have seen it, was about the German. Yeah, that was awesome. Tell, Tell our listeners about that. Yeah, this is kind of incredible. I'd been noticing and putting them here and there where people would write me and say, well, you know, in uh, after World War II, I was posted in Germany, and we were stationed at this place where there was a legend of a werewolf, and I'd look it up, and uh, one I hadn't found before is in this particular book, um, and again, it was told to me by uh, an army colonel and his wife, where there was 
there was a woman that was supposed to have been a werewolf or something, and I'm I'm not super clear on my details on this one, so I don't want to go into it too much. I don't I could page through my book and and look for it, but um, there were all these different places. It seemed almost every major installation that they had were connected with some sort of very powerful werewolf. And there was one man who was sleeping in a military vehicle um, overnight because they were kind of bivouacking, practicing. And one jumped up at the truck, high, very high truck window and looked in. And it had to be enormous for it to have done that. And they found the, the tracks around it the next day. Well, come to find out that um, they also, many of these also were supposed to be places where the Germans, the Nazis in particular, were hiding and working on um, these different sorts of saucers and, and yeah, aliens. Yeah, like the Bell, the Bell UFO or the Bell saucer stuff. Right, Deglaca, that I think it's called. And that um, it was somehow tangled with, and also there was a very elite squadron of military people that had the nickname werewolves that were special to Hitler's um, plans. And so you would find this elite corps of werewolves wherever you had special ops going on back in, in World War II. Well, here's a weird little thing, and I, I don't want to bore your listeners, but... It, no, it, not at all. I think you can also, you might also be able to hear my werewolf barking in the background, so I apologize for that. <laughs> no problem. Very apropos. <laughs> Of. But um, my grandmother, actually both my grandmothers, lived in a western part of Wisconsin that plays into another later chapter, strangely enough. This is, is, this is Hillsboro, correct? Hillsboro, Wisconsin. And it's in the middle of what we call the Driftless Area because the glaciers stopped there and went around it. Maybe because it's surrounded by 20, 20 miles of mountain-like ridges made up of a special rose quartzite that's very rare, and this is some of the oldest um, dirt, if you want to say that, mm-hmm. compressed dirt compressed into into crystals in the world. It was some of the earliest land in the world, and it's right there. And weird things have happened, including large numbers of mountain lions and black mountain lions, or black panthers, which aren't supposed to exist. But anyway, both my my grandmothers lived there, and one of them. Um, turned out to have been a spy during World War II for the United States. So cool. It, yeah, I, I'm still, I just found this out after I inherited a bunch of her papers. No way. And, <laughs> that, yeah, she, yeah she, there's her picture and a big uh, picnic photograph of the uh, OSS for the Russian division that was, that were studying the Russians. And she was, she was uh, Czech and spoke perfect Czech and perfect unaccented English. And so she was used, uh, I think, as a translator mainly. But my other grandmother, who was a very smart woman in her own right, uh, daughter of German immigrants, um, had a fifth grade education. And she ended up with a pen pal from Germany named Louisa, who was writing her constantly and who actually, by the, at the time that Ger- Germany was uh, finally defeated by the Allies, um, she was working in some unknown capacity at one of their North Sea... Um, military stations where they were doing a lot of these uh, these experiments, um, not too far from Kiel, if, if you know where that is. And so one of her letters, and I, I inherited her letters along with my other grandma's things, and I was reading them 
um, sometime about uh, in the past year because I hadn't seen any of these before. And there was this letter from Louisa where first the first page or two, she's talking about the rat population, how hard it is to get food, how she had to make a blanket and sew it, and sew it into a coat. So she had a coat, you know, wow. that kind of thing. And then she says, well, did you see on April 1st in our Kiel newspaper, we had big headlines that there were UFOs and the Russians were, and the Russians were claiming they made them. Well, the Russians claim they made everything. Ha ha ha. Little joke. And then the next page, she says, but of course, now we know that the UFOs are real and they don't look like the saucers. They look like, like this, like the cups, like the tea cups turned upside down. Wow. That she drew. And I've got her little drawings um, reproduced in the book along with the envelope with all the postage markings. So you can see this is actually from that era. She drew this little uh, diagram of something that looked kind of like a plate with this bell shaped um, thing on it. It looked so much like what they called the glocker or the bell. Yeah. And then she said, and then she said, of course we know they are real because they look like this and we know now that all of their flight and steering systems are located in the rim that that you know that that flares out from from the bell which I've seen on um the history channels shows they've they've kind of plotted out how the the uh, propulsion would have to go and that's what's involved That is so cool that, what, many, a, what an amazing discovery. <laughs> well, it was just so crazy, you know. Well, what she was doing, she was um, kind of working my grandmother as a sponsor to get her over to the United States. She was desperate to get out of Germany, which makes me think some other things, because she, her last name was the same as um, one of Hitler's right-hand henchmen. Oh, and I don't, know if she was, I don't know if she was related or not. And she did eventually get here. I actually met her one time. I, I think I was a teenager, and... Uh, she was had made it to Chicago, and she stayed friends with my grandmother, and and they stayed in touch. And I remember as her as this kind of just sort of meek little woman, kind of looking over her shoulder all the time, and um, didn't want to eat much, and just kind of stared at us, and didn't didn't have a lot to say to us. <laughs> mm-hmm. Was just kind of strange, like she was always on guard, like afraid she'd be found out or something. Was how it felt, but um, just such a strange, strange thing. And then it comes back to all this military installation and um the the so-called werewolf legends that grew up around them gosh that is so cool i i I always tell our listeners that like when you go home for holidays you're visiting your family ask your moms ask your grandmas for stories because you've always got them somewhere in the family there's always some weird encounter story somewhere you know Which it it just goes to show that a lot of this stuff is more commonplace than we really think. I mean, obviously, by reading your books and especially this new one, you have no shortage of of encounters, you know, of eyewitness encounters or. No. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And do you think it's changing where um, 
Do you think it's becoming easier for people to admit that they've seen something? Do you think it's becoming more destigmatized? Because, you know, we it it's obviously comes up, especially with, I think, like the generation before ours is that the um, that idea of like, I don't want to tell people I saw a Bigfoot because I don't want to sound crazy. You know, do you think it's getting easier for people to come out and tell these stories? Well, that stigma is still there. You know, it, it definitely is still there. And um, a lot of people who are active in cryptozoology or even just, um, you know, familiar with it are shocked to learn that not everybody knows who the Beast of Bray Road is. Right. And many people think Bigfoot are some kind of weird Yeti and, and uh, you know, to, to sell beef jerky with. <laughs> don't have, they have no idea, you know, of, of the depth of it. But uh, and as far as the uh, the dogman goes, after I presented that to the world back in ninety one ninety two, at least Elkhorn's little part of it, um, it was there's a little there was some hoopla enough to kind of make a sustaining motion that people started writing me and kept writing me, and then every time it would appear on TV, these isolated different TV shows, um, I, or radio shows that I would do would kind of keep it going until uh, I finally left the paper after about 10 years. But um, it was sort of lonely because, you know, the, the Bigfoot people were just saying, oh, there's no such thing as a dog man. These are just snouted Bigfoot. Yeah. And, you know, and my rejoinder was, well, if, if you went to Africa looking for, um, for a gorilla and you saw a hyena, would you say that was a snouted gorilla yeah yeah exactly would you call it a, a snouted chimpanzee or something exactly because they're they're very very different types of of, of animals uh you know orders or families of animals the the uh, canines have pointy ears they've got very pronounced muzzles even if they're somewhat shorter they've got canine teeth they walk on their toe pads they've got tails um you know they're just they're just built very very differently they move differently and they do different things so um, that uh, that was never anything that caused me to cast any doubt on, on the fact that these were there. But I'd say maybe about um, seven or, seven years ago or so, the tide started to turn when, and, and maybe Monster Quest, the, the one that did two very big episodes on the Dogman and then the, um, the Gable film at, at the end of their, their four seasons, uh, started to make people go, oh, hmm. They do look different. And then as these TV shows expanded, but more than that, the Internet, other people finally started collecting these stories and doing different things. Some just, you know, read them as stories on, on podcasts. Others, um, you know, incorporated them into home documentaries. Um, and the idea became more widespread. And in that way, I think people, there were more people who could uh, validate the, the new sightings you know, if somebody would write into um, one one of the Facebook forums and say, oh, I saw this, please tell me I'm not the only one, you know, who saw um, a werewolf running up this hill or whatever. And somebody would always write back and say, no, no, we saw, you know, so you had this sort of fraternal association built in almost with, with these Facebook things. And now it's gotten to the point where I have no idea how many Bigfoot and Dogman oriented sites that there are lots of them. And there's there's um, strictly no kill sites. Um, maybe we'll think about killing sites. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they they just vary um, believers only, um, skeptics only, all permutations. But it's out there. The topic's out there, and people are at least 
talking about it and treating it like a phenomenon that other people have had that is worth discussing even if we don't know what it is. And I certainly don't claim to know what they are, what essence they, they are made of. If uh, I, I tend to think that the best um, paradigm to fit all the facts that people report is the Native American one, that there's sort of a sliding scale of substance, the substance of life, of living creatures. And Ooh, tell me, what, tell me more about that. I like that um, concept. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. They feel that all of these creatures, um, including not just uh, Bigfoot and the Dogman, Thunderbird, but um, you know some of the large cats too, that they can be the. For instance, I've heard from very different people that the black mystery cats are actually spirit animals originally, like right. the Dogman or, or like Bigfoot, and that when when they're here on Earth, for, they come from what we might call another dimension or. Um, something like that, another world, they call the spirit world. And they say they come here for specific purposes. They can procreate when they're here because they're solid. They can eat. They can leave droppings. They do all kinds of things and act almost like normal creatures in, in most ways, other than seeming to be extremely intelligent and um, staring at people in the eye and being very curious about humans as much as we are about them. It's like they, they come here to study us, too. Like that's part of their, their mission. And they do what they need to do here, and and I, I kind of agree with that because there are uh, a fair a fair number of sightings from people who have seen um, Bigfoot with young ones, or even the dog met like it would have to be a dog lady, I guess maybe mm-hmm. unless it's stay, unless it's a stay at home dog. <laughs> man. You know, it's it's 2019. It's about yeah. time. It it could be, but I've I've had reports of them crossing roads with young ones, carrying young ones. And it seems like they have, and that seems to be part of their territorialism too, I suspect, um, because they seem to want other creatures, other weird creatures, other predators, and humans especially, to stay out of certain prescribed areas where they carry on a lot of their, their activities and which become known as hotspots once once we observe them enough times in, in these certain places. So um, they can go back, though, when they need to, and it, it also covers the times when people say, because there are more of these than I'm, I'm comfortable admitting to, where people will, will claim that they could hear it coming through the grass, and they were sure it looked like the, the size of footprints being made looked like giant human footprints, but they couldn't see it. So you have these ones where they're um, invisible, yeah, in invisible. Some way or, or, or just kind of pulsing in and out of vision. There was that cool eyewitness account in uh, I Know What I Saw about the guy who saw, I can't remember what the gentleman's name was, but he noticed a large entity that he said was like a lenticular cover where if you looked at it from this angle, you could sort of see the shape of the figure. But if you looked at it from this angle, it was almost like um, you were looking through that, like the predators, like cloaking field or something. Like it was, it was like a blend of, it was like an invisibility field from one angle, and then from another angle, you could actually see the form of the figure. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, it is. And um, like some polar bears have really unusual um, hairs as part of their fur that are transparent and that can bend the light. Right. All right. I remember that. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So- and so that's an- another thing. So it may it may not be an unearthly ability after all. It might be something that's you know, just the best um, 
evidence of, of this or, or use of, of that particular thing that nature can do. Well, and that theory makes me think of two things. One, which ties directly back to your book, which is this idea of these sort of spirit creatures or interdimensional creatures coming down into the third dimension to experience our reality. I mean, that sounds a lot like to me about the Greek gods up on Olympus. You know, you have stories of, you know, usually not for very good reasons, but like coming down and shape-shifting, you know, Zeus turned himself into a swan. Like that that, that reminds me of those myths. Um, well, and, and even the Christian Bible has those same things where, you know, there was um, a divine council of beings um, with the, the Old Testament Yahweh that, sat at his table and kind of did his bidding and they were they were higher in order than the angels and they're the ones that if if you read it it's it's all there in the first chapters of the bible that um were sent down to earth to kind of shepherd the the fledgling civilizations and ended up intermarrying with them and instead causing these giant giant races that's and where the, the nephilim come from right yep the, Anun- the anunnaki the, the watchers the nephilim that were the offspring of these um, visitations of these divine council members. Um, they were they were giants, and if you look at the the Bible, tells very plainly that there were giants, not twenty eight foot tall, you know, Jack and the Beanstalk right. giants, but within the known parameters of giantism that we have today. And in fact, for some reason, I was I was reading um, the David and Goliath story. Um, just the past week, and I was so struck how uh, the the measurements that were given and the measurements taken were very careful because it was a thing that rather than risking their whole um, army, they would send the two biggest best warriors out to fight. And usually these were giants, and they would try to match their giant or, or exceed it. So both the giants on both sides were were measured completely, and I think they measured his leg armor. On each for each leg was what would be equal to 125 pounds. Um, he was nine feet tall. Goliath was um, his his sword was the size of a weaving shaft, you know, like yeah. like a telephone pole or something. But it was very meticulously recorded, and we've got burials found all over the United States and other countries too, but particularly seeming in certain places around the United States where the bones are of giants. And they're, supposed, and they're supposed to have double rows of teeth. And and Goliath was Goliath had six fingers on each hand. Whoa, really? Yes. If you read, it's it's amazing. You know what what is there in those first chapters of the Bible relating to these things? If you take it at face value, and most and and I mean, I'm I'm a Christian. I'm a Lutheran, and uh, which is I think conservative and, and generally pretty correct on on most of. Uh, their, their Bible-related mm-hmm. beliefs. But like most Protestants and, and many other people today, when they get to these sec- sections where um, there are divine council members going down to earth, well, that's just something from that time. We don't, we'll never understand it. That, you know, maybe it's a metaphor. Right. And the, the truth is sort of knocked out of it that way because that's not what it says. It says they were there, they went down, they did this. And this is what happened. And that's why there's so much battling in that whole Old Testament, because Yahweh is trying to get rid of those remnants from the uh, the divine council members that had to stay on earth and turned into these sort of demigods. 
that were against Yahweh's will. Wow. Yeah, this is, all these all this stuff has as we've been doing the show further and further, it and I think that your book really points to this. There are echoes of of all of these types of entities that reverberate through all cultures, all stories, all encounters. And it really does make me think about that sliding scale and think that's probably a really good explanation for it. And really at the end of the day, um, what's the difference between an entity slipping down into this dimension to experience our reality and us, if you believe in a soul, and if you believe in consciousness perhaps coming from a higher dimension, being born into this world and experiencing this dimension, eating, procreating, you know, pain, pleasure, all that stuff. It's the same we're it's the same experience, right? You know, at the end of the day. Yeah, and, and if you look at universally the energy systems that seem to propel our universe, light, sound, whatever, they're all on sliding scales. It's not like there's there's black at night and there's white in day. It's there's you know nighttime when it gets very dark and then you go to the the dark grays and the lighter grays and then if the light of the sun is mixed you know mm-hmm. it's 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 a sliding scale of light vibrations with sound. We have infrasound and ultrasound on opposite ends of the spectrum, and we uh, many people don't believe that there are dog whistles because they can't hear the sound, right. but the dog hears the sound. And we know that they're there. We can measure them with instruments. And our instruments have, you know, become such extensions of our natural senses. That's one reason we um, we know so much more than um, people were able to certify in antiquity. Although I think they maybe had finer senses in other ways than too. And just being in, in the habitats that they were without the kind of daily electronic grind that we right, have must have right. more- much more in tune with their environment than we are. We've sort right. of closed ourselves off more and more from the natural world for sure. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, before we end this conversation, I need to bring up one of my favorite chapters from the book, which is chapter seven, the hidden little people, which is oh, yeah. awesome. Um, I love the story that you have in the book about the guy who uh, was out in the woods and seemed to encounter three or four, four foot tall entities with pointy ears, conical heads or pointed hats that seem to be just on the other side of the veil of reality. I'm fascinated with these stories um, for a couple reasons. One, um, you know, we did, we covered like some gnome stories on the show about particularly one family. I think it might've even been in Wisconsin or around that area. And I've, I, it's not, I can't remember off the top of the head, but two different families encountering some sort of little gnome man that lived in their barn and terrorized their koi pond. And then, um, and I've mentioned, I, we talked briefly about this last time, but I had seen uh, an entity outside my window that my dogs had actually alerted me to late at night, four o'clock in, that, in the morning, that sort of in, in June, July, which is, always seems to be that not only month of high strangeness, but time time of day or night that high, high strangeness happens. Um, you know, and what I saw looks like a, I would describe being more of a traditional alien gray, but I had a gut feeling like I was witnessing something sort of that was terrestrial or perhaps slipping in and out of this dimension, but felt more akin to my gut, like one of these little people 
or um, little entities and wasn't necessarily something that hopped out of a flying saucer. Um, can you talk a little bit about 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 those creatures, you know, elves and, and gnomes? Uh... Yeah, I'm fascinated by them. I, I really am. I actually have a novel about a certain type of German gnome that travels across the ocean with um, the family he's bound to um, and ends up having to go through all this stuff in America like through a hundred years. So I'm hoping that's going to get published one of these days, awesome. but, but I did a lot of research on them and I found that a lot of times, um, they are also known as shapeshifters. And even, even in the, the UK, there's a type of elf that can or turn into, it can shift into what really sounds a lot like a Bigfoot. And I have one of these in, in the book, uh, um, it's got a real. It's got like a six six syllable name that I can never remember. Um, but there, there's again this kinship, and then they all have these conical hats. These, it looks like they're wearing little dunce caps or something. Yeah, it's or, like David the Gnome. <laughs> yeah, and and some people will see them without the actual hat. It's like the the skin is part of. It's like the the cone shaped thing is just a part of their physiology. Oh yeah, that's so weird. Yeah, which is is very very strange, um, and they're they're always sort of al- either allied with or fighting with the fairy like beings, which are small too, in most cases. Um, but and there are rules for counter for for interacting with these these worlds in almost all places, even uh, Native Americans who talk about their little people. You're not supposed to look them in the eye. And never, never, never accept food from them right. or drink, you know, anything, or you'll end up being part of their world, you know. And you think, about, uh, oh, Rip Van Winkle, mm-hmm. you know, yep. when it, and then slept for a hundred years or whatever it was. So there are all again all these commonalities, and they seem to be really allied with with trees. I know what I'm not sure if this is the one you were talking about in my book, but there's one that was called the Olympic Wood Elf. Yeah, that one came. Yeah, that that was the little ent entity, right? He described it as looking like it was a little tree, almost. Right, an ant or wood elf. Um, they called it a skinny, creepy being that is a walking small tree thing. <laughs> I guess that's the best you could ex- explain something like that. And he, and he said, I have a photo. It would really help me if you know of other people seeing this kind of thing. I've had an extremely hard time going out alone during the day, and would like to have some closure. And I don't know if you can get closure from this sort of thing, but he wrote, I have loved the outdoors all my life and have a lot of anger about not feeling safe. That is my own stuff, I guess. But even if just one other person has had something like this, I will feel some sense of relief. You know, and people do kind of sometimes get that feeling like it's it's not fair. I can't go in the woods because, you know, there's a Bigfoot, there there are wolves, there are these um, elf creatures that can hurt you. And there are really still a lot of places in the world where people will go around and determine if there are ant dwellings or ant, excuse me, or um, elf-occupied places that they should avoid because if they build a house on it, they're in for trouble. The house will always be haunted. Bad things will be done. Their milk will go sour, et cetera, et cetera. So it's it's something that I think is still very close to um, folk belief. I meant to write this down, and I forgot to the... Um there's the story in your book about the oh, man. What is it called? The the haunches, the haunches, haunch. Oh yeah. Which yeah. that was an, that was an insane story. That there's like some, allegedly 
out in the middle of nowhere, a small hidden town of little people that will attack anyone that comes into their into their village or right. scare them off. Right, not just them, but they've got they've got a, a regular sized man who drives a black pickup truck and carries a shotgun as their general muscle. And if he doesn't succeed in deterring people who come out trying to find them, then they come running out of the cornfield carrying small sh- shovels and picks and hoes. Spades, you know, <laughs> spades, yeah. And um, there are all kinds of um, other attaching legends, such as. There was one where the man went in and, and somehow got broke through their ranks and they ended up killing him and hanging him in in the barn, in a little barn, and that the shadow is still there. And there are little houses that you could once get to, but um, I believe, and now this road where they're on has always been called Mystic Lane, right. which is kind of interesting. Um, most of that area has now been taken down for subdivision expansion because it's very close to this beautiful lake. Um, but this is actually not not with the, you know them killing people and, and all that, but I do believe there's some core of truth to this because Wisconsin was one of the favorite states for people to um, overwinter when they were when we had all these traveling circuses. And uh, in fact, Delavan, Wisconsin had the, the Clown Museum. You go to Baraboo, again, not far from that pink quartzite, and you have, um, Circus World Museum. We're very tied to that, and there are other places where we know there was overwintering. And the same is true for um, the guys who wrote the weird series, the Weird U.S. series. Mm-hmm. They have different, differently named, but very, very similar colonies where there's outside guards. There's someone who will punish you. They actually found standing little houses at one. Um, and this is New Jersey and Florida. They have different names, but they're very much the same. And I have found evidence that there were um, various uh, people who entertained and what entertained in what they called the sideshows. Then. And most of these were just people with genetic um, problems of, or not, not. I hate to call them problems. Right. They, they didn't think of them that way. They were generally fairly happy and well-paid people um, doing what they did. But um, there was supposed to be a colony near Delavan Lake, which is not very far from where I live. Mm-hmm. And also, I might add, had... Um, giant sculptures found on the grounds also. But um, a friend of mine, a very close friend, said when she was young, they used her family was friends with this elderly lady lady that they just called Auntie. And they would go to Auntie's house, visit her a couple of times in a summer. She she lived where there were other, she knew other circus people there. She didn't know what they were. But Auntie was quite distinguishable by looking at her arms and legs and feet because she had thick fur like an animal on um those parts of her body. And so they build her as a a dog lady or something like that, which probably set off another scores of other lessons and things. But she remembers taking the cookie from the plate and looking down and seeing those furry feet. And, um, (laughs) you know, so that tells me they're really, and it makes sense. If, if you are very differently um, put together or look very different from most people, you're going to kind of want your own space where you can just kick back and people aren't going to, you know, ask you if you're in the circus yet or whatever. And so why wouldn't they build small places acclimated to them that um, can be a bit secluded and where they can just sort of be themselves? Everybody has the right for that. And so I, I, I put more credit um, in, in that sort of 
um, so-called legend because it, it has this base. It's based on real things and, and logical steps that, that these small people might take. It's fascinating how small towns, and not, I mean, not even small towns, but, you know, across the United States, and you point this out in, I think, the last chapter of the book, you talk about how, you know, we tend to generalize creatures now, um, local legends, by just calling something Bigfoot, but, you know, like Missouri had Momo, or there's the cabbage head creature, which I love that, and Momo was said to have a pumpkin head, but it is fascinating that so many small towns have some sort of um, story of a mystical being or, you know, what you were just talking about reminds me of a story that my uncle, who's unfortunately no longer with us, he grew up in a very small town called Denver, Missouri. And there was a man that lived on a cabin down on the river, secluded, named Tom Sauer. And he had no legs and he had wooden legs. And one of the things that my uncle, when he was a boy, would do is he and his buddies would go swimming down the river and he said Tom Sauer would always be sunbathing out on the on the creek bed and they would sneak up and st- steal his legs and then he'd get really mad at them and they thought that was a real <laughs> fun prank to play but they also got along with him and and he told my uncle told me that Tom Sauer was well known in the town to be telekinetic. He could apparently move objects with his mind. And he said that the adults would tell stories about seeing Tom levitate tables and make spoons spin in the air. And, um, and he, you know, apparently they all, they all talked about it as if it was a very real thing. Um, it's just fascinating to me that, you know, you find, again, that's a story that exists in my family tree. <laughs> you know, there have got to be cool. countless of crazy stories like that. Well, um, it takes away the preconceived notions we have about what's normal or even possible in the human being, you know. And it just often, so often goes beyond what should be possible with our solid earth um, means of, of understanding what's around us. Yeah. Um, I unfortunately need to let you go. I can't believe how fast this hour has gone by. Um, but before we do a couple things, one, uh, I'm very excited and I don't know if I should spoil this or not. That's up to you. But in the end of this book, you admit to having eyewitness accounts to a cryptid yourself, um, which I'm very, very excited. I was very excited to read. Um, and if you've listened to our last episode with Linda, you can probably guess which cryptid that is. Um, can you say anything or should we leave that for people to pick up when, and read when the book comes out? Well, I, you know, I think what I'd like to say is that regardless of, of the type of cryptid, and I'm pretty sure about this one because my encounters and sightings were daylight, close range, um, very, very hard for me to refute as being anything else. And it was very difficult for me to have these experiences and then decide what I do about them. Because, I mean, how convenient, you know, as as, uh, they would have said on Saturday Night Live, that here I, this person who writes stories about these things, should be endowed with sightings of them. And I have to point out that these occurred 20 years after I began this search. So it wasn't like it just happened overnight. And that I did kind of um, know where to look and had an awareness from the many, 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 many um, encounters other people had um, 
talk to me about. So I, there were all these mitigating surfaces, but I thought, well, I, I know I'm really going to take some hits if I put it out. And then, and this went on for a couple of years where I'm, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I? Another book went by and then I got to this one and it just struck me that it was very unfair and disingenuous of me to expect other people to cough up their own stories so that other people could have understanding of them and keep tightly tight-lipped about my own. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just felt for honesty's sake, I had to do it and just let the chips, if people don't want to believe me, they don't have to, I don't really care, but I had to tell what I saw just like the story, the title of my book says, um, to be fair to the other witnesses and to people who might benefit from hearing what I had to say in my own experience. Well, those encounters are very, very cool stories. And um, I actually think it lends more credibility uh, as someone who has been in this field. I would expect at some point you would have an encounter of your own just because you're like physically and figuratively living so close to the subject. Um, so, I mean, it's like saying, uh, that a truck driver is less, uh, credible as a truck driver because he's seen cars on the freeway. You know, it's like, well, it comes with the territory, I think, you know, I don't know if that's a good metaphor or not, but, um, uh, Linda, thank you so much for coming back on the show. I, I mean, I didn't even get to half of my questions. Um, the book is amazing. I know what I saw. Um, uh, where can people pick it up and where can they pre-order it? Um, and where can people email you with encounters of their own? Should they want to share those stories? Well, they're all, the books are pretty much available in any online distributor, you know, all the Barnes and Noble, Amazon, uh, whatever else, the one that you might like. So that's for starters, the brick and mortar stores, a lot of them, Barnes and Noble and others, um, have them on hand. So they're, they're not hard to find, but there is a list of um, all my books in one spot. And pretty much my go-to spot is my blog, which is just lindagodfrey.com. No W's or anything fancy like that. And um, you'll land on the main page. There's another page that says About, which has, uh, you can scroll down a little bit, and there's a form you can fill out to send me messages, hopefully good messages. Uh, stories of uh, things that you might have seen if you want to share those. Um, It's pretty much all there at lindagodfrey.com. Also, many stories and um, things that have happened to me, you can find um, posted there over the years from my my blogs. And a lot of them are things that weren't in in books or anything either. So just lindagodfrey.com. And that will also lead you to, I've got a Facebook page, Linda Godfrey, which is mostly just for random stuff. And then Linda S. Godfrey is my Facebook author page. Twitter, I'm on, and you'll you'll get all that from that website. Great. That's awesome. And you have a documentary coming up, don't you? I do, God willing, that we finished the last fourth of it. But it's about those mystery cats around Hillsborough. Once you know, the same place where um, my, both my, grand, my grandmothers lived, um, has over 150 sightings just over the past several decades. And I give all the credit to a man who lives there, a former newspaper reporter and editor who has collected them all and put them together and maybe writing his own book. I'm trying to encourage him. But um, my youngest son is a filmmaker, and we've been working on this with him since September. Lots of really motivated and credible, believable witnesses incredible landscape it's like nowhere else on 
uh, in Wisconsin for sure, big high rocky crags where the, again, it was the driftless area where the, the glacier didn't go. So it's perfect cougar habitat. And then half, over half of the sightings are of the so-called impossible black mystery cats and nobody really knows for sure what they are so we have a lot of witnesses a lot of theories and uh, my son's doing an excellent job with it you can go to return to wildcat mountain and find the link to it either on either on um youtube or facebook and we'll put a link to that trailer and to lindagodfrey.com on the sh- in the show notes of this episode so if you're listening you can just pull those uh show notes up and go right to both of those uh so definitely reach out definitely check out linda's works and if you do send her a message it better be nice because otherwise you can have the bigfoot collectors club to deal with um <laughs> Linda, thank you so much. Congratulations on the book. Uh, I know what I saw. Modern Day Encounters with Monsters of New Urban Legend and Ancient Lore. It is out July 16th. I'm telling you guys, you got to read this book. And you should read all of everything that Linda's written. Um, so, so fun. Um, and when the um, return to... Oh, uh, um, what's Wildcat Mountain? Is that what's right, Return to Wildcat Mountain. That's the name of the mountain in Hillsboro, Great. actually. When, when you do finish that uh, film... Because it links back also to, to that whole Hillsboro chapter in your book, um, I definitely want to have you back on the show to talk about it. So maybe we can even get your son on and we can all talk about that film and talk about the black mystery cat phenomenon, which is really, really fascinating. That would be fantastic. Great. Thank, thank you so much for having me. And, and thank you to all your listeners, too. Oh, anytime, Linda. We really, really appreciate it. Um, thank you so much. Oh, boy, I want to thank Linda S. Godfrey one more time for being a guest on her show. She is the best. I mean, she's like the real deal. She is one of our current living John Keels. She is going out into fields and pastures and forests and valleys and she is finding these stories she's finding people who have not told their story sometimes for decades and she's getting it down on paper and getting it into your eyeballs um so cool i really want to tag along with her on an investigation i kind of want to be a paranormal investigator slash cryptozoologist fuck acting let's do that instead um who knows what 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 i could see out there i mean we didn't even talk about the fact that there are people seeing a creature called the mule deer woman she's half woman half deer and there's native american folklore that has been talking about it for centuries hybrids are real I think hybrids might be real. Are they aliens? Are they from another dimension? I don't know, but I think everything is real now. And we should be terrified. Well, that wraps up another episode of Bigfoot Collectors Club. As promised, here is a new track from the forthcoming album, Unfathomable Darkness by Sun Eaters. Uh, dropping at the end of the month. You can pre-order it on lotuspool.com. Check it out. This song is called Night. And I bid you, on behalf of Bryce Johnson and Riley Bray, good night. Until next time, go get regressed.
Hey guys, Heather Ashley here, host of the Big Mad True Crime Podcast. If you're looking for a true crime podcast with all of the details and none of the small talk, you have found your people. Each week, we dive deep into a new case and learn everything there is to know, from getting to know the victim and the impact their cases had on those around them, to the investigation into what happened to them and who is or might be responsible. And if the bad guy looks like he might drink whiskey by a dumpster or has the social skills of an ogre, we say it because we were all thinking it anyway. As the name suggests, we get big mad over true crime, and I would love to have you join our incredible community of listeners with big hearts and zero time for small talk. Subscribe to Big Mad True Crime anywhere you listen to podcasts and listen to new episodes every single Monday. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.